0: What's up everyone, and thank you for joining us for a brand new episode of the Wharton Current. Today we're really excited because our guest is Zach Gross, Executive Director at J.P. Morgan Investment Banking in the Power and Utilities Team. We sit down with Zach to discuss offshore wind in the U.S., the growth trends, the costs, and what investors should think about when investing in a project. Let's do it. Welcome to our, our guest, uh, Zach Gross, who's coming um, from uh, J.P. Morgan Power Utilities Group. Uh, Zach, if you can just take you know a couple of seconds to, to walk us through uh, your background, that'd be great. And then we'll, we'll kick off.
1: Absolutely. And Charles and so Hamsa, thank, thanks for having me uh, today. I've been with J.P. Morgan for 10 years. I I lead our power generation coverage, uh, which is covering um, independent power producers, renewable developers, a lot of the financial sponsors that invest in the space. And and obviously, more recently, I've been spending more of my time on the renewable sector, and particularly uh, what we're going to talk about today on the the offshore wind space. We recently advised BP on their acquisition of a number of offshore wind developments uh, off the coast of Massachusetts and New York. Well, thanks again for having me.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Look, Zach, thanks a lot for taking the time out and joining us to kick off. um, I think for our listeners, it would be helpful to have somewhat of an overview of the offshore wind space. Um, You know, this is an industry that has taken off quite substantially in in Europe, and it looks like there is a very substantial pipeline for development in the U.S. Maybe if you could help answer what, what I think is a fairly simple but very important question for us is, You know, if you're traveling and you see an offshore wind farm, you might think, one might think, you know, you probably don't think that because you know the space, but one might think, why on earth would someone build a wind farm out in the ocean when there's, you know, so much usable land to be able to do it onshore? What is really the main advantage of doing it offshore? It's it's a good question. And the way I would start by answering it is
1: when people talked about solar and wind onshore 15 years ago, they asked the same questions. It's cost way more than gas, way more than coal. Why would you ever think about building it? And just to give you a sense of the, the scale on one of these things, I mean, they are absolutely huge. It's around probably 600 feet, you know, 10 stories larger than the Eiffel Towers. And each year the turbines are getting larger and larger. And so uh, agreed today the cost profile of offshore wind is still more expensive than onshore renewables. It, the average kind of offshore wind turbine uh, across the in the Northeast is going to cost roughly $4 billion for the equivalent of what would cost in a gas plant around $900 million. So significantly more cost. But the reason people are investing in it today is just that they expect the cost profile to follow what's happened with solar and wind and that the more investment that goes into it. And once it reaches a, a critical scale, you'll see that cost profile decline from around $4 billion to almost grid parity with uh, with gas today. And the reason it's primarily focused in the Northeast and then the north, uh, the Northern part of Europe as well, is that the, the capacity factors or how, how much wind speeds there are in those regions is actually pretty significant. So the average onshore wind farm in the US today runs um, approximately 30 to 40% of the time whereas for offshore wind, just given the fact that there are such significant wind speeds um, in the oceans today, should run somewhere between 50 and 65%. And so you are paying more for it, but it just does produce a significant amount of power. And the second reason, if you look at a lot of, you know, in the US particularly, where it's being developed today is the northeast and then a little bit in the southeast many of these regions don't have access to onshore renewables today so it's not like they're making the same determination of should we do onshore solar versus offshore wind they're just there is no solar irradiance in the northeast or the land cost to actually build enough solar in new york city for example would just be way too expensive and so their only other option is to build it offshore and given the fact that the largest cities are built on the coasts you have a transmission line that interconnects it directly into the cities itself. So it's actually well-placed generation for the needs in the Northeast.
2: Gotcha. Okay. That, and thanks for that, Zach. That, that all makes a lot of sense. I want to pick up on one point that you made that's quite interesting is, you know, you made the comparison where the equivalence kind of something on offshore wind that's costing you $4 billion today may only cost you about $900 million in gas. we're expecting the economics of offshore wind to improve quite a bit as we go forward. What is what is really going to drive the improvement in economics? Is it going to be more on the initial development side or is it going to be a combination of development and then also the O&M that we expect to improve? It's less on the development side. It's certainly more on the supply
1: and the construction side. You're doing everything for the first time. And there's some idiosyncratic rules around offshore wind in the U.S., something called the Jones Act, which means that you can't actually have European vessels that that drop off all this equipment. And all offshore wind equipment today is manufactured in Europe. There just actually isn't any um, there's, there's no framework to build it in the U.S. Over time that will come in. But right now when you're bringing a turbine or a motor or anything, what it, hap- what it has to do is it has to go from Europe and it's not even able to dock off the coast of Massachusetts. So over time, what's gonna happen is they're gonna build their own offshore wind industry in the U.S. You're already beginning to see it in New York and Massachusetts as part of these RFPs when they're actually, the states are bidding out the contracts to who's, who's gonna win the 20 year contract to build an offshore wind farm part of what they're judging those proposals on are what are you gonna do for the community in order to build the supply chain network in the US today. And so it's, it, it really is two factors. One is just the equipment's getting a lot better. Um, it used to be these turbines, the average turbine was around eight megawatts, which is still very big for onshore. Um, and they're already up to around 11 or 12, and they're gonna go up to 15, 16 megawatts. So the actual uh, efficiencies of the plants are, get, are improving. But then yep. just the supply chain around it and, and the scale is the, is the biggest driver. If you look at the forecasts for solar and wind, uh, what people would have expected on an LCOE or in a levelized cost of electricity, we're, yeah. we're well beyond what people would have expected in the late 2050s. Like No one would have ever believed we were going to achieve this. And people say that offshore wind is going to follow the same trajectory where the forecasts have it coming down pretty slowly. But in reality, just given the amount of quantum that's supposed to go in, it's approximately 30 gigawatts, that's planned in the Northeast. That's the size of the entire New England power market today. They could replace, shut down all the gas plants that, outside of the fact that you just need more, less intermittent resources, but they could theoretically shut down all the gas and coal plants across the entire New England region and just run it on an offshore wind. That scale, something like $100 billion of investment alone should drive it down just from a from a uh, supply standpoint.
0: And, and when you think about LCOE, like, uh... Currently, just to kind of give our our audience a bit of a reference, how does offshore wind compare to, uh, let's say, onshore wind, solar, uh, gas, and coal, and where do you see that going in the next, let's say, 10 to 20 years?
1: It's objectively a subsidized resource today. It is where solar was 10 or 15 years ago. The average contract for offshore winds in the U.S. today is something like 70 to 100 dollars a megawatt hour and they usually start and then have a two percent inflation escalator over time uh, and so for 20 years the end of those contracts can get up to well above 100 dollars a megawatt hour and if you look at the most lcoes or just you know the retail wholesale power prices in the u.s today it's somewhere between 30 and 40 dollars a megawatt hour so you're paying two to three times the amount for that electricity and it clearly is a subsidization in order to incentivize and enable the Northeast states to hit their RPS targets. Right now, most of those states have 100% RPS. The only way to do it is to get nearly baseload uh, renewables. And offshore wind is the, is, the, is the easiest way to get those baseload renewables until energy storage comes online. And so when you think about the other opportunities, I think, the, I think the, the way these governments are thinking about it, and it really is a state by state. Right now, each state runs its own RFP to run contracts. Um, So New York is running the next RFP It expects to contract for something like two gigawatts of offshore wind. So on that $4 billion is around $8 billion of investment for those two to three offshore wind farms. What they're saying is that we recognize it's going to be these initial wind farms are going to be expensive. But over time, we've already seen some deflation in those PPAs. So, you know, they used to be historically in that 70 to 100. It wouldn't shock me if the new contracts start in the 60s. And so over time, the objective is to get closer to what the merchant energy prices would be in the northeast. And we're, we're seeing that in, Cal- in, in Europe today, where it used to be these really high CFD contracts that were well out of the money and clearly subsidized. And now already a lot of them are merchant. And so I think once the it's hard to say when it's going to occur, but my gut says is that once we get towards the back half of the decade, um, you should begin to see closer to grid parity as the LCOE converges with gas plants.
0: No, that's super interesting. And maybe like just um, if we just take a, a step back, like, can you kind of walk us through how uh, how a CFD contract works and maybe like how because you, you're, you're saying this is subsidized. So just um, where does the subsidy come in, uh, in in these contracts and how does the auction process process kind of work?
1: Yeah, so, so Europe has a CFD. The US is just a traditional PPA construct. And what happens is, is that, um, for example, New York is running the RFP today that I mentioned, and it will go out and solicit bids from anyone that has an offshore wind lease that can connect into to New York today. Right now, there's only really call it five to 10 players that play in that space. They're all really large oil and gas majors, utilities, some, some uh, financial sponsors, and each of them is able to bid in. And they give you pretty clear dynamics about what needs to be in your bid around where are you sourcing things from? What does your development look like? What is, the, uh, what is the price of that contract? What's the tenor of that contract? And they give pretty formulaic approaches. Each state runs its own different uh, construct. There are some nuances to, to each of them, whether it's New York runs something called an offshore rec contract, so an offshore renewable energy contract, others are more traditional PPAs. You bit into it. And then the, the, the power authorities in each of these states, so in New York, it's an entity called NICERTA. Um, will decide on which person they wanna go uh, go through with. And usually it's uh, one or two plants that they'll decide to contract with. And it's a fairly quick process. So I think New York has already accepted bids and should announce who should win that, my gut says, uh, early next year. And so it's a pretty quick turnaround. And then the, once you actually are selected though, it is still a, a bunch of development that needs to get done. These construction milestones are four years. So you're not really going to see the first plants come online until the 24,
2: 25 time period. Mm-hmm. Great. And then, um, Zach, maybe just sidetrack uh, a little bit, when we look at, you know, you mentioned within this space, you've got a lot of the oil and gas kind of super majors and financial sponsors are playing in this space as well. Would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on the risk and return profile of offshore wind and what it sort of looks like, you know, the, maybe the way that I understand it is you sort of got three phases. Of an offshore wind development, you've got the permitting stage where you're kind of talking to BOEM and you're getting the lease in place. Then you've actually got the development and construction phase. And then you've sort of got once the asset has been fully de-risked, is operational, you've sort of got the, the final stage of the of the project. What does the return profile, in your view, look like at the three stages? And you know, maybe, maybe just for fun, if you were a sponsor playing in this in this space, where and, and I understand this is somewhat of a, it's somewhat of an unfair question because obviously it depends on, you know, what kind of sponsor you're at, what's the nature of the strategy, but where where would you see yourself playing within the space? It's a good question. And, and in some regards, it hasn't really been tested.
1: It's not like onshore wind where there's just 30 transactions a year and you can really isolate what's the cost of the capital in different transactions, but I can tell you at least what people are guiding to. so. If you look at what most people are bidding into the RFPs, those returns are somewhere between 11 and 14% levered equity returns. So that is true development risk. How, that's kind of the highest return that people expect to get in this space. Yep. And if you compare that to what's going on in onshore wind renewables development, it's probably somewhere to you know, 200 to 400 basis points ahead of that. So really people are baking in incremental development risk associated with this. It normally takes around 100 to $150 million of development to get a plant ready to bid into an RFP and get constructed. So there is there is more initial investment and there's more at risk. And so you have to be compensated for the initial upfront risk that you're taking when you're doing an offshore wind farm, let alone when you compound the fact that the permitting hasn't gone you know perfectly according to plan. And the initial permits are expected to be decided in early December, whether they're going to come out from Boeing. Mm-hmm. The, the the perspective isn't a little, little bit of sidetrack here the perspective is is that the um, bone took a really long time to to approve the first one but once the first project which is expected to be vineyard wind once that is approved we're hearing that there should be a probability that the rest of the co- the the permits should, uh, should, should come pretty quickly after that. And the yeah. feedback is similar to the LNG industry where it took a really long time to get the first LNG export permits approved. They wanted to understand the system in its totality. But once the first one was approved, you saw, call it the next five to seven get, get permitted pretty quickly. And so I think that once BOEM gets comfortable with how the entire offshore grid is going to look and how the different transmission lines and there's different flying uh, right of ways that they have to figure out. But once they kind of align on what those should look like, the next set of permits should be easier. And so you maybe see that development risk come down over time. The, the next stage is um, kind of the middle stage, which is you've already done most of the development. Now the plants have contracts and really you're, you're trying to price construction risk. And I would think that this should come in somewhere between the eight to 10% range, would be, would be my guess. Um, there still should be higher than onshore wind given the construction schedule is yet to really be tested. It takes a longer time. There's no full EPC wrap. So when you're building like an LNG facility, you normally have one EPC like Bechtel or somebody like that who yeah. takes the construction risk and works with a bunch of different subcontractors in order to build this. That's not really the case for offshore wind. It's just a little too specialized that the sponsors themselves generally act as the EPCs. And so we do think that that might lead to a little bit of a cost to capital premium. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, th- this really hasn't been tested. And then the third, the third and final stage associated with it is once the plants reach COD. And I would think that, um, again, never no plants will come online in the U.S., but if you look at it in Europe, these ca- cost of capital returns are actually un- within a- onshore wind. And we're seeing them priced at somewhere between 5 and 7% levered equity returns. And the reason for that is once an offshore wind farm is running, given the fact that its contracts are actually well in the money and it's well-subsidized resources, the amount of contracted cash flows you're getting relative to onshore wind is actually yeah. pretty significant. right? So you've got 20, 25-year contracts, $100 a megawatt hour, Relative to solar today, where it's you know now seven to ten year contracts, and those contracts are twenty dollars a megawatt hour. So the contracted nature of an offshore wind farm once it's built is actually pretty heavily de-risked. Where I would play, um, I'm going to avoid the question a little bit. Would uh, very much depend on the cost of capital of your fund. Um, I would think that taking development risk is not is not for everybody and as a private equity fund, it's really difficult to put $150 million bets that could be just complete dry holes if you don't win a contract or if development risk gets delayed. It's really much more geared towards strategics or folks that have been doing it for a very, very long time uh, in the offshore wind space. So I don't think you'll see many financial players play there outside of the couple folks that have really been active like Macquarie or Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. But otherwise, you probably won't see that many new entrants there. And the, it's the middle stage where I think you'll probably see the most infra funds uh, and, and private equity funds come to play where you're not bidding down to the lowest equity returns because the plants fully do risk. That's where pension and, and insurance funds will come in. But there is some development risk. There's some ways to think about optimizing it. You can think about dispatch and merchant energy prices and managing basis risk. There, there's stuff that can be done to drive higher returns. That middle yeah. stage is probably where I think most of, uh, most of the private equity and infra funds will end up playing.
0: In, in the, uh, the operational phase, like how much of uh, merchant risk do you actually take? Like how much um, of your power that you're generating will be contracted versus, uh, versus merchant? And is there, is there a way to kind of increase your returns by taking more merchant risk during that operating, uh, operating phase, even though you have a contract for, for 20 years? So right
1: now, when you build like an 800 megawatt project, which is the standard size of the project, most of it's contracted. So you're contracting all 800 megawatts. And for the most part, given the contracts are $100 a megawatt hour, you want to have as much contracted as you can. With that said, there is some some of the, the states do have concepts where there is basis differential, particularly in New York. And you're bidding. You basically earn capacity prices based on a basket of different regions and you sell it into that one specific region. And so there, there's probably some arbitrage, but really for the most part, these merchant energy curves will, are gonna start 20 years in the future. And given the fact that there's a four-year CapEx life cycle, um, really these contracts will come offline in 2045 and it's really difficult to ascertain where merchant energy prices are gonna be then. It's just so many moving pieces already today, just given the capacity markets and how much how much retirements are going on right now. So it's a little difficult to ascertain, but there's less optimization that can be done on the merchant on the merchant energy side. Most of the optimization is going to be around making sure these plants hit their capacity factors, improving O&M. If one of the transmission lines go down, it could be pretty devastating. So it's going to be, I think, much more on the cost side than the revenue side.
0: And so, when you're when you're thinking about an investment in this, especially on the operational side, like what are the main risks that you think about? Because this is a very safe investment, even in the in, in the context of infrastructure. Um, what what would you think about uh, when you would look at an investment in? Uh, well, let's like, let's take the the three phases. So, like a development, construction, and and, uh, and operations. Yeah, I mean the development.
1: The development phase is really about dry holes, and and there's there's uh, there are a lot of different factors that come into here. It's the depth of the water, it's what the water geology actually looks like. There's two, there are a couple of different ways that people actually push the offshore wind farms into the into the ground. There some are very cheap, like monopiles, which is you guys you should just Google it. It's really cool. It's wow. all done underwater, um, and some are a lot more expensive. And so there's a lot of work to be done up front about trying to ascertain what is going to be the cost profile wow. of it. Once you're into the construction stage, it's really about managing subcontractors because you're going to have different people that are doing the turbines, that are doing the monopiles, the the uh, people that are doing the, the transmission lines, the foundations, managing all of that uh, subcontra- subcontractor work, making sure you're not going over budget. I mean, the last things that have been done of this size have been mostly the nuclear plants, and a lot of them, most of them have been over budget. And so we're yet to see one happen in the US. I think people have experience in Europe. They feel pretty good. There's contingency baked in, but there is just general construction overruns and a risk. And then on the operational side, it's really about, I mean, the way, you do, the way you do O&M is either by helicopter or by boat. It's like not easy to get things, how far offshore you are, how long it takes to get um, somebody to the plant, how easy it is to go in between the different offshore wind turbines in order to fix them. There, there's a lot of things That are complex about fixing this versus fixing a solar farm where it's like you just send somebody in a truck and he kind of goes wipes down the solar farm uh it's it's a little different than that so there 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 are more risks but once it's running and it's running well it it just they they produce so much electricity and their contracts are so in the money that it generally is viewed as a pretty low risk investment
2: yeah and now zach i want to be mindful of time here i understand that you uh were at 101 already um but I mean, look, thanks You know, thanks a lot for doing this. I mean, every time I talk to you, I mean, I learned a ton from you. So <laughs> obviously, despite the fact that this is a very nascent industry in the US, you clearly have a lot of great knowledge. So thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, and I hope to be back soon. Hope I make the cut again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Zach. <laughs> okay,
2: you've got to develop the same amount of expertise in something else, and then we'll bring you on. <laughs> we'll, we'll Challenge exception. Right <laughs>